Hey, everybody. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is the news from BuzzFeed News. It's Wednesday, which means we've got a brand new episode of the group chat for you. We're talking about the far-right movement in Europe and how so much of the really dangerous rhetoric spreads on the Internet. You may have heard of it. And then we'll give you a push alert so that you don't have to have that moment where somebody's like, oh, my God, did you hear about that thing? And you have to sort of pretend like you know what's going on, but you kind of don't. We're here for you. Since 2015, Germany has welcomed more than 1.2 million refugees to their country. And there are lots of Germans who are really excited about this fact. But there has also been a huge wave of anti-immigrant sentiment across Germany as there has been across Europe in general. So two weeks ago, in a small German town called Chemnitz, a man was murdered and rumors started spreading online that the man was killed by immigrants. So then it led to massive protests in the streets of Chemnitz, and people were actually chasing people down. It was very ugly. It was very chaotic. After all of this, Germany's biggest far-right party, the AFD, got involved and decided to hold a silent march in Chemnitz. That march also got completely out of hand. So for today's group chat, we have three people who know a lot about this story from a lot of different angles. We have world editor Miriam Elder talking to reporter Ishmael Darrow, who's on the debunking team in Canada, and world correspondent Lester Fetter, who was on the ground in Germany. They get into how this fake news sparked some very real violence. Lester kicks us off. So alternative for Germany kind of, which probably for, for Americans, if you think of it as like the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party, it's an anti-immigrant party, but it's, it's still a, a pretty substantial uh, part of the political landscape. They came into town a week after these, this first round of violent protests and sort of wanted to portray themselves as the, the more mature, responsible voice of this anger about this murder. So they initially organized what was supposed to be a silent march through Chemnitz. And then the police halted it early for a bunch of reasons, one of which was that there was a left-wing blockade of the march further down that they didn't want to clash with. As that standoff sort of went by uh, and it got more and more tense, suddenly clumps of people sort of were coming to the edge of the march. And there there were people who were overt neo-Nazis who were using the slogans of, of fringe neo-Nazi parties that did rush the police. Um, they were attacking journalists. It got kind of scary for a minute. But Alternatives for Germany was like we were protesting there aren't you Nazis, you're tarring all of these people with with this uh, epithet. People are trying to ignore the locals who are angry about this. The elites need to listen to their people. Right. I guess that's something that fake news also does is like it kind of eliminates this idea of reality. So people can say that anyone who seems to tar their movement um, is actually just a paid protester. It's something we're seeing in the U.S. You know, yes. as well. Uh, Ishmael, you wrote a, a great story on how uh, on the interplay between f fake news and particularly anti-Muslim fake news um, happens between Germany and the United States. So can you walk us through a little bit of the background of how we got here? Like the, these protests didn't just break, up, break out out of nowhere. No, they, they didn't. And uh, so what I described in this uh, story that I wrote was that there's a real pipeline going back and forth between Europe and the United States. And that pipeline carries a lot of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim propaganda and tropes. And um, it sort of becomes a self-reinforcing uh, 
system. It becomes a closed system where um, stories that originate in fairly, you know, disreputable sources in uh, Germany or Sweden or other parts of Europe that are experiencing tensions with immigration, that then gets filtered through to the English-speaking media in the UK and in the US. Uh, but you sort of lose that local context. What I've noticed is that often it loses that context and it becomes just accepted as fact uh, in a large swath of the of the political spectrum here in North America that Europe is just in flames, that immigration has utterly destroyed you know, what was once a proud, noble civilization. And then it sort of goes back the other way too, where American activists will, you know, go over to Europe and and kind of spread the message the other way, you know, sort of encouraging some of those elements or um, or really boosting some of these concepts like so-called no-go zones, the idea that, you know, uh, cities, whole towns in, in certain uh, parts of Europe are just inaccessible to law enforcement or that non-Muslims aren't even allowed to go in or that they get assaulted if they do. Uh, these things, you know, have been repeatedly debunked by, you know, us, by uh, Snopes, by all sorts of fact checkers. And yet these myths survive because I think there's this really strong interplay between North American and European uh, anti-immigration and anti-Muslim forces. And what role do you think uh, places like Facebook or, or YouTube um, should be should be playing in all this? Are they taking the steps to, to shut these these fake news stories down or outlets down? From what we've seen in the last couple of years, I really don't think so. Um, I think they're figuring it out. And I think we in general are trying to figure out how do we how do we navigate this new information landscape where anybody can say anything? And that's a wonderful thing. But when it goes south, you know, who's responsible or who's going to counter it? And can you do it in time before violence or something else happens? Right. And so, I mean, it's it's like these uh, these echo chambers are just uh, reinforcing themselves. So in addition to the crisis uh, that we see on social media, these protests have also had huge repercussions uh, in terms of what's happening inside Germany and uh, with German politics. Lester, what on earth is happening? How is Angela Merkel responding to this? Um, Has it reached a crisis point uh, for her over there? Uh, It's hard to say. I think she's been dealing with a slow-moving crisis for months. Basically, there's a lot of really deep local anger about this situation. Uh, People were not happy, a lot of people in this area, which is not even an overwhelmingly right-wing area, but a lot of people there were not happy with the migrants who were coming through in the first place. Um, There's a lot of anxiety about, about crime in the area. There are local crime statistics that say, though crime as a whole has gone down in the city, in the very center of the city late at night, there has been a, an increased problem of violence involving young people or crimes involving young people. So there is a real dynamic at the heart of this also. Her immediate response was to denounce the far right. And that was generally true from most of people, senior people around her. Uh, one of her biggest critics inside of her party, though, did then immediately say that immigration was the mother of all political problems. Uh, and the governor, the equivalent of the governor in in the state where Chemnitz is based, has tried very hard to uh, sound receptive to the people who are hostile to immigration. So he started this town hall I went to last week by saying, a lot of people are saying they don't like being called Nazis, and I understand that. We need more police. Uh, He then, after the second round of protests, gave a speech to the local legislature where he said there was no, essentially no mob violence, which is contradicted in part by some of the videos that appeared. Uh, so this then put her, him crosswise with, with Merkel. So it's, it continues to be a huge mess, and the state is going into elections next year. 
I find it difficult sometimes to, you know, in, engage with uh, this sort of idea that people, you know, are are freaked out about uh, the immigrant crisis and are freaked out about seeing all these immigrants because at the end of the day, is this not just a question of um, kind of straightforward racism? To some extent, sure. Absolutely, to some extent, sure. Like, I, I talked to one AFD supporter who, you know, said that she didn't know if if the president of Syria was actually a dictator because it was a lower nation and couldn't be compared to a Western nation. So that's obviously the case. Um, I talked to one member of parliament from Merkel's party who was saying, you know, people say that we're not listening to them, we're not listening to them. We're listening to them. They can come talk to me if they want. I have this happy hour at a bar. No one's coming. And even when I listen to them, my job is not to just do what they want. I have to balance all of the other interests where democracy. And some people, local people who, who are frustrated with this, who want to be sympathetic, say part of this is also a failure in understanding what democracy means in a country that used to be communist. For them, from that perspective, democracy does not mean you get your way. It means it's a, it goes into a complex political process. And sometimes this very vocal and in some cases racist minority loses. That leaves them feeling disenfranchised. And so then that has them pushing even further into this critique that the elites aren't listening to us. This isn't a real democracy. If you are also then inclined to believe that there's propaganda coming from the government and you're seeing information on Facebook that isn't true, it, it increases that paranoia. Right. This seems to echo a bit, uh, you know, what uh, what happens in, in pockets of the U.S. And um, Ishmael, you've described how, uh, you know, the transfer between fake news in Germany and uh, into the United States. And Donald Trump has even commented, not on these specific protests, but he has commented on the immigration issue in Germany. And I wonder if you could walk us through a bit how, how that happens and then the effects on the political space uh, here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's uh, two instances that come to mind. Um, famously, Donald Trump uh, during a rally said, You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. Of course, uh, everybody in Sweden kind of scratched their heads because they couldn't think of what he was talking about. And uh, so it turned out that what he was actually re referring to was something he had seen on TV. But uh, clearly what he was uh, pointing to was this this impression that Sweden was having real, real challenges with integration and that there was this explosion of crime led by immigrants to Sweden. And that's obviously been disputed by lots of people. And then more recently, uh, Donald Trump said that, you know, Germany had had a similar explosion of crime. And he specifically pegged that to the influx of asylum seekers in the last several years. And of course, uh, as I think Lester um, alluded to, a lot of crime stats in Germany say that violent crime is down. It's, you know, at near historic levels, I believe. And it just doesn't really, um, it doesn't track with what the messages are. You know, the facts often contradict what, what the messages are being put out by Donald Trump and people uh, who have similar views of immigration. And what it does do, though, it, it creates sort of a parallel universe. And there is a large constituency online that simply doesn't believe that this isn't a crisis. And, you know, no matter what facts or what fact checking comes to bear, um, it is sort of subsumed into a larger sense that the truth is being hidden. And, and you're not getting the whole story. And especially in Germany. In fact, one of the things that I've noticed is that 
there's fairly strict standards on reporting, you know, for example, the the names and nationalities of people involved in crime, which uh, I think, you know, given that country's, uh, you know, system, that has long been seen as the norm. But in the current context with all these tensions about immigration, that often gets interpreted as, oh, the authorities or even the newspapers are hiding uh, the true scale of immigrant crime. So there's a lot really to unpack here. And uh, and it ultimately does just push people into various um, universes of their own sets of facts. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about how supposedly, you know, controls meant to uh, engender responsibility just feed uh, the, the conspiracy machine. And Lester, you talked about this a bit in, in your latest story, that it's also the speed of things that seems to be creating such chaos, that people are um, expecting, you know, ap- rapid, if not immediate responses, and that maybe the political system isn't set up to give them the answers that, that they're seeking so quickly. Or even the, the policing system. Uh, at this town hall I mentioned with the, with the leader of the state government, he was pleading with people to let the police do their work. They hadn't even finished their, their investigation to figure out what actually happened before the protests began. And then before they could fi- you know, name for sure what they thought had happened, an arrest warrant they had for these first two suspects was actually leaked to a number of right-wing people by a, a, somebody inside of a, a prison, I believe, in another city. So it was like a, a crazy chain of events where there was this void and the internet was filling it because the police were trying to do things slowly and responsibly. And this was driving the politicians crazy because they were basically saying, there's no widespread problem. We're, we're getting to the bottom of this. People are investigating. But they couldn't give an answer to these people that was satisfying fast enough. You know, this is something that we see uh, on our debunking team. Whenever there is something like a shooting or a major news event, I think people have just learned to expect information at the speed of the internet. But often investigations just simply don't go that fast. So what fills that void often is conspiracy theories and propaganda and everybody sort of trying to tilt the narrative uh, in their direction while they can, while there is that vacuum of information. It's also worth pointing out to talk about the Swedish election for one second, right? But despite that, and despite this very large uh, or loud block of people in Sweden who claim there's a cover-up of immigration, the anti-immigrant party in this election, uh, while it did gain seats in parliament, underperformed its polls by about 10 points. It got about 17% as opposed to 25. Um, and so in terms of the, the block that it gained in Sweden, clearly the audience for that level of anger was not nearly as large as people thought, and certainly the party itself believed. And this was the Swedish election that was held uh, last Sunday, where the far yes. right was expected to do much better than it did, but still you know, did make some gains. Ishmael, I'm actually curious... You know, did did you follow um, the reports of you know the role that pl- that fake news played in in the lead up to this election? Um, I did. I, I tried to follow it, um, and certainly the rise of the Sweden Democrats, this uh, hardline anti-immigrant party, was a main topic of discussion. Um, there was just a study released by the Oxford Internet Institute, which uh, looked at what kind of content people in Sweden were sharing about the election, and they found something pretty striking. They found that one in three news articles shared online uh, came from so-called junk news sites. So these are sites that have a very loose uh, relationship with the facts. You know, they really uh, tend to be very hardline anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and anti-integration. 
and generally sympathetic to the Sweden Democrats. So that was something that I took note of because when you look at these sort of larger international, um, you know, alt-right or far-right uh, media ecosystem that's developed over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of uh, focus on the Sweden Democrats and then also in Germany on the alternative for Germany, these hardline anti-immigrant parties. And, and this international ecosystem was really, really pulling for a big result in Sweden. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, how th their underperformance, as Lester said, might be received. But certainly there was a large apparatus of misinformation that was sort of, if not directly, you know, um, working with the Sweden Democrats. The narrative I've seen emerge in, in the wake of this election is that it's uh, an incomplete picture to focus on the far right, that actually what we see in Sweden is that politics is just becoming a lot more fractured and isn't maybe dividing into just left and right. Lester, I wonder, you know, you as someone who does cover the far right, um, particularly in Europe, um, if you think that's a fair assessment or, or what the real takeaway from the from the Swedish result is. Yeah, it's I mean, it's super complicated, in part because we have to define what we mean as far right. The Sweden Democrats began as out of a neo-Nazi milieu in, in Sweden in, the, I think, the 90s. But today, I would not say it's as far to the right as the alternatives for Germany, which started from a much more moderate place. So I think that's that's one thing just to keep in mind. But in order to to head off a threat from uh, the the rightmost party, the center right party moved very far to the right on immigration. So one of the things we're seeing is the center as a whole in a lot of countries, even where far right parties don't make big wins, the mainstream right parties do tend to move to the right. And certainly uh, in Germany, Angela Merkel's party, which is a center right party, is also being pulled in that direction. It, that's part of why the party is becoming internally divided. That was world editor Miriam Elder talking to reporters Ishmael Darrow and Lester Fetter. Because this is the group chat, we want to know what you think. Today we're asking the question, do you know anybody who's been radicalized via social media? I know I know a few people. I unfollowed them. Send us the answer to your question. Get in on this group chat and we might feature you on a future episode. If you want to get into the group chat, text JoJo the words group chat at 929-236-9577. And if you want to read Ishmael and Lester's fantastic reporting on the far right in Germany, text JoJo the word Germany right now and you'll get it right on your phone. In these times, our phones are buzzing constantly with new push alerts. One of our deputy breaking news editors, David Mack, has the phone that buzzes more than anyone else. And that's why he's here for Push Alert to tell you, listeners, exactly what are the two stories that you should know something about today. David, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Please save me from my phone. <laughs> We're talking hurricane stuff today because that is really like the dominant story in the news cycle. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody's writing about it. We have multiple reporters in the field right now. What is going on? What do people need to know for their push alert this morning? Well, you're right. We are on storm watch here at BuzzFeed News, uh, along with the rest of the country. We've got uh, Hurricane Florence uh, barreling towards the uh, east coast of the United States at the moment. I'm just looking at the latest satellite photos. Absolutely enormous storm. It's hard to describe just how big this thing is. Oh, uh, it is currently a Category 4, but those really don't mean anything until it gets closer to the coast at this time. Uh, the National Weather Service has 
has already said this is potential to be the storm of a lifetime for the Carolinas coast. Uh, one official described it as a potential Mike Tyson punch to the Carolinas. Oh, God. I don't uh, even know boxing, but I know that's pretty bad. That's not good, shall we say. There's wind speeds at the moment of about 140 miles per hour, at least last night. Uh, and, of course, winds are one thing with these storms, and that's how right. they decide the category uh, level. But, of course, uh, the level of rain and the storm surge is where the real danger is. That's what officials keep warning. Uh, they're warning, rather, in Wilmington in North Carolina and uh, they're ex- in Jacksonville there, too. They're expecting somewhere between 30 to 50 inches of rain. Uh, that's oh, just no. rain, let alone the storm surge. Uh, and FEMA is warning, as well, that the power could be off in these area for weeks. So... They are saying that uh, evacuations are uh, mandatory in a lot of these places. They're really urging people to get the hell out. Uh, More than a million people are already evacuating from these areas. Uh, The federal government is taking this extremely seriously. Oh, God. Stay safe, everybody. Um, And our second story that we have in our push alert is also related a little bit adjacent to hurricane stuff. Tell me what is going on. That's right. We're talking hurricanes still, but we're talking about a hurricane from last year that's still in the news. Uh, The president was in the Oval Office yesterday being briefed by his FEMA administrator about uh, upcoming uh, Hurricane Florence when he started talking about his administration's response to Hurricane Maria. That's the one that hit Puerto Rico last year and killed, we now know, almost 3,000 people. Uh, as opposed to the 60 or so that the government was saying for a long time. Uh, The president was saying what an incredibly successful response his administration did. He was praising it as one of the best jobs that's ever been done with respect to uh, hurricane relief. That sounds like a lie. Well, that sounds like something that ignores the fact that 3,000 people died. Right. Uh, That's not the best. Uh, The president says, of course, because of Puerto Rico's uh, electric grid was already in disrepair and the fact that it's an island uh, territory, that it makes it harder to do this kind of relief work. But this, uh, these comments came on the same day of September 11 anniversary, of course, and about roughly the same death toll there between the two events. Uh, very dire uh, situation there still in Puerto Rico. Uh, our reporter Nidhi Prakash also has reporting that uh, FEMA, the Emergency Management Agency, approved just 3% of uh, applications for funeral assistance uh, for the Puerto Rican families who lost their loved ones after Maria. Uh, this, that's a shocking figure. They approved just 75 of uh, almost 2,500 requests that came in for money to help bury people's loved ones. Uh, part of that is because uh, to, get these lo- to get this money from the government, you had to fill out a lot of forms and show proof that uh, someone's death was specifically related to the natural disaster. And, of course, we know, given uh, the administrative disaster that was going on both federally and locally in Puerto Rico after the storm last year, that it was impossible for many families to make, get that documentation. Right. They didn't have time to, like, go and find all of the certifications that they needed because maybe their house had blown away. That's very true. It was also that uh, the local administrators weren't filling out the forms properly because they didn't have the right directions from the local authorities there as well. So huge mess there. And, of course, this is all coming, as we now know, as we've said, that Florence is approaching the East Coast and uh, the Trump administration is saying how seriously they're taking this. But we also know, thanks to some reporting uh, through Rachel Maddow and again through Nidhi Prakash as well, uh, has obtained uh, a letter that was uh, sent to Jeff Merkley, uh, one of the Democratic senators, showing that the government has taken money out of the Federal uh, Emergency Management Agency. They've taken about $9.8 million out of FEMA and transferred it to, of all places, ICE. That's the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. That seems like a really risky move as hurricanes continue to get worse across the country. It seems like we're going to need a, a lot of money uh, to to deal with these. But of course, the administration says that they also need a lot of money to deal with uh, 
quote, enforcement and removal operations, as well as, quote, protective operations. Okay. I feel like the emoji for this push alert would be the thinking face emoji, like, hmm, Mm -hmm. are you sure about that, guys? (laughs) Doesn't seem great. Doesn't seem like a great idea. David Mack, the Disney princess of breaking news, if I must say so myself. <laughs> which which one? Um, I, Cinderella is a little basic for you. I feel like you're a belle, you know? Thank you. I am the uh, beauty to your beast. <laughs> oh, God. Rude. Two weeks ago, we had a group chat conversation about self-care on Instagram, and we asked you what you thought about it. So many of you sent really thoughtful, great comments, and so I wanted to read a few. One of you wrote, As a disabled young woman, the self-care trend has actually made the things that I have to do to keep going during the week more accepted in society. I no longer get weird looks when I say I need to go lay down or have a nap or need to have a soaky bath. I'm so glad for that. That makes me really happy. And another comment that we got that I really liked was, guys, you already said it in the episode. It's a capitalist hellscape. The intention of self-care is great in the viewer and not so great in the people sharing it, which I think really strikes to the heart of it, where the people who are sharing the fake self-care tips are really not considering their audience or how much effect they could have. Thank you so much for texting us and keeping the conversation going. Everybody listening, please keep texting Jojo. Jojo loves it. And that's it until we're back on Saturday. Thank you so much for listening. You know the drill, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you like what you heard, pretty, pretty please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts and give us a billion stars, even if there are only five that you can actually choose. Choose those five, though. It'll help more people find us and enjoy the show. And if you're out in the world and you want to just tell somebody about the podcast, that is actually one of the most important ways for people to find out about us. So go ahead. Tell your neighbor. Tell your friend. And don't forget to get in on the group chat. It's cool and fun, and we'd love to shout you out on a future episode. So text JoJo 929-236-9577. This show was produced by the Pod Squad. That's Megan Dietry, Alex Laughlin, Camila Salazar, Amit Ali Akbar, and me, Julia Ferlan. Our boss is Cindy Vanegas Jaswale, and our music is by Chad Crouch. You can follow us on Twitter at BuzzFeed Audio, and you can and should email us all of your feelings at podsquad at buzzfeed.com. We'd love to hear from you. And special thank you to Jojo, who, fun fact, has never been radicalized on social media, so you can trust them. We'll be back on Saturday with another episode of The News from BuzzFeed News.